So this morning, uh, as you've recognized, we've kind of uh, turned a chapter in the story of Antioch and uh, have made some changes to the way that we worship together and the way we're using the space and kind of how we are uh, trying to be discipled by Jesus on our time together on Sunday. And so uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to walk us through some of those changes. Um, But first, we're going to come to this passage as we kick off a new series that will walk us through uh, the, the epistle of 1 John, uh, starting today and really going all the way through the summer. We're going to spend about 11 weeks uh, unpacking this, uh, this beautiful, beautiful text. And so next week, I'll give a little bit more uh, historical background and that kind of thing. Um, but for this morning, I just want to call our attention to these first four verses, which I personally feel are probably among the most beautiful and important uh, paragraphs in all of Scripture. And so the letter that you have before you, 1 John as we call it, uh, was written by most likely the Apostle John, one of those original disciples that walked with Jesus on earth as a young man. And now at this point, he's probably in his late 90s. He's a very old man now, and he, from what we can gather by the context of both this and 2nd and 3rd John, the next two letters he writes, uh, he refers to himself as an elder or an overseer. And so the Apostle John now, as an old man, is playing this role of shepherding, pastoring, eldering, uh, most likely a network of house churches in the area of Ephesus. And so he's writing this letter to a specific set of congregations of early Christ followers, and uh, he has some just incredibly profound, deep, beautiful, convicting ideas that continue to apply to us today. Primarily, it's this vision of God and love and how these two difficult, huge parts of our lives are brought together and clarified in the person of Jesus. And so, um, here's how he starts the letter. That which was from the beginning. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you understand that this is throwback language. This is throwback to Genesis chapter 1 that speaks of the beginnings of the universe spoken into creation by God. And then it's also familiar language if you've read John's gospel. So same author, in the gospel he was writing the spiritual biography of Jesus, but in this letter he's pastoring a group of people. But he begins it the same way. In John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So he's kind of quoting himself here. And so in this whole first chunk, what I would say is that what he's beginning to introduce is a vision of Jesus that looks something like this. The creator God has entered into human history and made himself known to us in the person of Jesus. Okay, so that's the conviction, the story that John is telling as he begins this letter. Here's what we need to know, that God himself The God who made everything has entered into the world he created. The creator has become created, paradoxically, and in the person of Jesus, he has revealed himself or made himself known into his world. Okay? So that's a beautiful, heavy theological idea. But John isn't just doing theology here. He's actually doing autobiography. John was there with Jesus. 
He spent three years of his life, probably as a young, maybe a late teenager, early 20-something, following, literally following in the footsteps of the rabbi Jesus. John was there when Jesus was teaching the famous Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was doing miracles, when he was healing, when he was silencing storms. John was there as Jesus was praying. John was there sharing meals, including that Last Supper with Jesus. John was there when Jesus was arrested and crucified, and John was there when Jesus appeared after his resurrection. And so John, the author of this book, now is a very old man, is one who literally knew Jesus of Nazareth, the most famous and influential person in human history. And he didn't just know him as a, from a distance or in a formal relationship, but as a deep personal friend. Imagine being best friends with Jesus. John actually had a nickname for himself. What was it? The disciple who Jesus loved, which I'm sure all the other disciples loved that, right? But that's came, that came to be his identity. This is who I am. This is the most important thing about me. Not where I'm from or what I do or how much I make or even what my first name or my last name is. Here's the most important thing about me. I'm the one that's loved by Jesus. They were friends. And we even have this one story of John and Jesus reclining together and John laying his head on Jesus' chest. It's like even though he was his friend and rabbi, when John looked at Jesus, he recognized the Father heart of God and cuddles up like a little kid with their dad. And so in verse 1, when John says, we have seen with our own eyes, touched with our own hands, and so forth, he's not just speaking theologically, he's speaking autobiographically. And now as an old man, who probably knows he's in kind of his sunset years, he's given the rest of his life to telling this story, to passing on to anyone who will listen, I knew Jesus. We were friends. I was there. I saw. I heard. I was with him. And now he's passing on these stories and these insights to the next generation of disciples. And so what's important to understand as we come into 1 John is that uh, you'll notice here and throughout the letter, he speaks of himself in the plural form, right? Which probably isn't like a royal we or something like that. He repeatedly uses the words we and us. So who's John talking about? As he writes this letter, who is the we? Well, the we is the original apostles, those that were there with Jesus, that walked closely uh, with him. And so that's who he's talking about. And then he also has a clearly articulated uh, audience in mind that he's writing to as well. So he uses the word, starting in verse 3, you, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship. So who's the you? The you is obviously the next generation of disciples. So that first generation of disciples of Jesus that weren't actually there with him to hear his teaching and experience his life and death and resurrection and all that. And so what we have before us is this incredible, sacred uh, text where one of Jesus' best friends, closest companions, one who knew him better than anybody else, is in the end of his life passing on the stories the truths, the reality of who this Jesus is so that these early disciples of Jesus 
uh, the next generations would be able to carry on in this incredible tradition. And so the beautiful thing is that this doesn't just apply to those first house churches in Ephesus, but we also are among the next generations of followers of Christ. We are the future of the church, so to speak, that they were thinking for. And so we are the recipients today of the stories and the insights of a man who walked closely with Christ, who knew him well, who loved him, and knew himself primarily as the one loved by Jesus. So it's a beautiful, uh, just even that in and of itself makes this valuable and beautiful to, to me. And so many of you know that about a year and a half ago, I finished up seminary and uh, got a master's degree in applied theology. And so... Uh, the word theology comes from two words, theos, logos, uh, meaning God and words. And so theology is the study of which words we ought to use when we speak about God, which when I put it that way, it sounds like a really silly thing to have a master's degree in. I, I studied which words we should use when we talk about God. Um, but for, for many of us, we understand how significant words are when it comes to understanding life and God and love and all this kind of stuff, words carry an, an incredible amount of power. In our gatherings this morning, hopefully you're understanding the emphasis we're putting into carefully chosen words, carefully formed prayers, and that sort of thing, because we are shaped by words. The reason our words carry so much weight is because we're made in the image of God, and his words carry weight. If you think about it, with words, God spoke creation into existence. With words, the Father affirmed his love and affirmation of his Son at his baptism. With words, Jesus heals the sick and drives out demons. And even though we have the witness of creation, God's general revelation, God has revealed himself to us in the most profound way through the word of God in Scripture to make us wise for salvation. And so, theology... God words, which words do we use when we speak about God, are hugely, it's hugely important for us as, under, as followers of Jesus. That we hold God's word in high esteem, but we also committing, commit ourselves to knowing and understanding and using the words that he's given us to speak of him and to him. So words matter, theology matters. But here's the danger. Um, I'm guessing most of us have probably met someone who seem to know all the right words when it comes to talking about God, but they live a totally off-putting life. Have you ever met anybody like that that seems to know all the answers and be able to pray in King James and quote all the scriptures, but there's somebody you would never want to spend any time with? There's no love, there's no grace, there's no compassion, it's just words, words, words. It's, there is a reason why we often refer to seminary as cemetery, right? Um, oftentimes, it seems that the people that know all the right words are the last people you'd want to sp spend a day with. And Jesus seemed to constantly be rubbing up against these kinds of people, calling them out for knowing the scriptures really well, but being arrogant and self-righteous and hypocritical. We heard that in the Sermon on the Mount over and over. In John 5, Jesus blasts this whole group of religious leaders saying, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you find eternal life. And he goes, these are the scriptures that testify about me. 
and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You hear what he's saying? He's like, yes, words matter. The words of the scripture matter. Know them, meditate on them, study them, memorize them. But the point of the words that God uses to reveal himself to us is that they would lead us to the person of Jesus. That we would come to him, become like him, see ourselves like John as those that he loves and that we would join him on his mission in the world. And so Jesus says the point of the scriptures isn't just to give you words, it's to give you life. And that life is found in Jesus himself. And so this is what John is saying in these first four verses. At the end of verse one, he says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That God's ultimate revelation to us isn't a set of ideas or a set of doctrines. And it's not even just this book as much as we revere it and receive it as God's word to us. The point of all of it is that God's ultimate word to us is a person named Jesus. He is the one that the scriptures point us to. And he isn't just a word, he's a word of life. He is the invitation to come and find the life that we were meant for. And so, that's the theology piece. Now here's the incarnation piece. In Jesus... God has become human. That's what, that's what John and early Christians came to believe. That Jesus wasn't a man who worked his way up to become God, but he was God in the beginning who entered into our world and became human. Word has become flesh. Theology has become a man. This is the story that it's all leading up to. And so one of the central themes of John's letter is this idea of incarnation. I'll unpack that word for you real quick. In means in. Carne, if you're a Spanish speaker, means flesh or even meat, right? There's this scandalous doctrine at the heart of the Christian gospel that in Jesus, the creator God has become flesh. He's taken on skin and bone and flesh and blood. He's become one of us. Now here's what's so interesting as John wrestles with these two big ideas of theology, the words we use about God, the word God uses to reveal himself to us, and incarnation. The gospel is the story of word becoming flesh, ideas getting lived, God bringing life. And so the danger to somebody like me who has studied theology and for others of us that are wired this way is that there is a danger that the work of theology actually goes against the flow of incarnation. That we're trying to take the flesh that is Jesus and cram him back into words. Words about God. And the gospel is that the word has come to us in a person. Now, I still think theology is a valuable thing, and we all have a theology and do theology. We're just either good at it or not, or paying attention to it or not. The words we use about God matter, but the ultimate word God has given us is a person. And this is the story of Jesus. The world, the creative life force, of the universe taking on a body and moving into our neighborhood. 
And so when Jesus talks about the kind of life that he has come to bring, he talks about a very flesh and blood reality, a very lived experience. Not just a set of ideas or doctrines or beliefs that we confess, but a life and an identity and a flesh and blood way of being, serving, caring, discovering, thanking, forgiving, loving, tasting, embracing, doing whatever we do for the least of them. It's an embodied faith. Word has become flesh. Gospel has become a person. And it's a dirty, sleeves rolled up, sweat on the brow. And it's a life where there's always plenty of wine at the party. And so this is what John is doing in the epistle. And this is why we're going to spend so much time on it over the course of the summer. It's because we desperately want to receive the word of life that is Jesus in a way that actually impacts every part of our existence and our being. We want to move towards this word that is life, towards this fleshed out, embodied faith. And not just let Christianity be a set of words that we know how to use, but like John, we would come to see ourselves as those that have tasted, seen, encountered and ultimately received identities as those who are loved by Christ. And so that leads us to the question in this new season as a church, how could we order our worship, our time together here on Sundays, in a way where we will be able to encounter God, receive our identity from him, be conformed to his image, and join his mission on reconciling all things to himself. We don't want to just come here to talk about God, to sing about God, to think about God. We actually believe that God invites us to a fleshed out reality here on the ground where heaven meets earth as we gather in the name of Jesus. And so many of you know that over this last year, we've been rolling out a new vision. The vision that God's given us as a church is this simple phrase that's on the front of your bulletin, the reconciliation of all things. This gospel that God in Christ is making everything new again, that he has a plan and a promise for redeeming everything that he's made, making the world uh, a, a, a new world, a new heavens and a new earth, and somehow he's doing all of that through Christ. Because of Christ's blood shed on the cross, there is a way forward, a hope for humanity, hope for your life, hope for creation. That's the gospel that we proclaim. And so we've taken, hopefully you've picked this up by now, taken this idea of reconciliation of all things and broken up all things into these six kind of relationships. The relationship we have with God, the relationship we have with ourselves, the relationship we have with one another within the church, the relationship we have with our city locally, the relationship we have with the world, people around the nations, and finally, the relationship that we have with the rest of creation, the non-human parts of creation. God wants to reconcile or make new all of those relationships, all things, all things. And so those six relationships have become for us, uh, as, as we've been dreaming together as staff and leaders and others in this church, a paradigm and a pattern for discipleship. What kind of people is God calling us to be in the world? 
uh, we, we come along with, with him on a journey to experience reconciliation in all six of those relationships. And so there's other ways you could frame that up or sum it up. That's the way that we've felt led to go. And so what we're doing now on Sundays is taking those six relationships that are being reconciled by Christ and using them to shape the culture and the experience and the worship practice that we're sharing together. And so I want to walk through them with you and hopefully it'll make, help you make sense of some of the changes that we're making. And so for each of the six relationships, we've basically got a value that corresponds with it that we hope will be shaping for our Sunday experience. So the first is that as those called to reconciliation with God are gathering, speaking of what happens here on Sundays, is sacramental. Sacramental. We talked about the sacrament of baptism last week, a way in which God brings his life, his grace, his love, and his blessing into his people. So we believe that gathering together as the people of God is actually sacramental. It's an opportunity for us to receive the life that is Jesus in a fresh way that we couldn't otherwise. And we don't even think you can podcast it. We think you had to be there. And so uh, let, me, let me tell you a little bit more about what we mean when we say sacramental. It's that we gather with the hopeful expectation of life-changing encounter with the living God. We come not to be entertained, but to offer our worship to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with grateful joy and reverent awe. We gather to stand in the presence of God, surrender to the work of the Spirit, and receive the grace of Jesus through the ministry of the Word, the sacraments of bread and wine, and the water of baptism. Okay, so the idea is that when we would come on Sunday mornings, we would come with a hopeful anticipation that we're going to be with Jesus, that we're going to encounter, that we're going to uh, experience the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit in a unique, special, set-apart way. And so uh, that's, a, that's a culture that we're trying to cultivate, a prayerful dependence, an eager spiritual expectancy that we're here today not just to be entertained or to be educated. We're here to encounter the sacred through God. And so part of that commitment for us is having the scriptures read every week. Hopefully you've picked that up. We've been doing it for a few months now. That every week we want the word of God to be declared and made a big deal about. Personally, I like it because even if the sermon stinks that day, you still get to hear from God's word, right? And I'm only halfway kidding. There will be some stinkers. I can't promise that they're going to always be base hits. But we come to receive and to listen to God's word. And so uh, we come to the table. We practice baptism. We come to position ourselves as recipients of God's life, God's grace, uh, and, and, and everything that's offered to us in Jesus. And so our gathering is designed to be sacramental, to be spiritual, to be sacred, to be something that you had to be there for. Because God promises to meet his people in a special way when we gather in the name of Christ. So, relationship with God, our gathering is sacramental. Secondly, as those called to a reconciliation with ourselves, our gathering is liturgical. Okay, And so, uh, we believe that each of us is in a relationship with ourselves. That's the biblical anthropological view, that each human has a relationship with themselves, and that relationship, like any other relationship, can be healthy or unhealthy. 
but it's one that God wants to bring wholeness and restoration to. And so what does it mean to be a, a healthy version of ourself, to have a healthy relationship with ourselves? Well, it means that we're becoming who we are, that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus, that we are living into our identity as those who Christ dwells and delights in. And so we come here to be formed, to practice worship, to practice confession, to be part of a, a process or a program that's going to move us to new places. And so here's what I mean by liturgical. We gather with the historic Christian church, retelling the story of redemption in the seasons of the church year. Our worship is the work of the people not paid professionals. Believing there is no formation without repetition, we give ourselves to the identity-forming rhythms of scripture and song, confession and creed, prayer and proclamation, as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so liturgy, if you don't know, literally means work of the people. What this means is that I'm inviting you, when you show up here on Sundays, to show up ready to go to work. You have a job to do as the church, as do I. And that job is that we are here to worship. We are here to sing, to pray, to fellowship, to study, to listen, to learn. And so as a team of staff and leaders and pastors, we are doing our best to make every song and every prayer and every scripture and every passage something that would contribute to the Holy Spirit's formation of your soul. And so that's why this morning we introduced this space for confession, central Christian practice that none of us ever take the time to do or even know how to do. We want to help teach some of these spiritual disciplines and create space for us to do them together. And you'll notice in your order of service, we're ordering our worship around these four uh, movements, gathering, listening, communing, and sending. So every week we're walking through this journey, gathering together, listening for God's word, coming together in communion, and then being sent back out into the world. The idea is that there is no formation without repetition. And so we are inviting you into this journey of of a new worship, a new liturgy, and the reality is you're not going to get it for quite a while. It's like you can't just go to the gym once and work out and expect to see any results, right? It takes repetition. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, we are being formed. And so we're committed to this idea that our gathering is formational or liturgical. Thirdly, as those called to reconciliation within the church, our gathering is familial. We are called to the same God who becomes our Father, which makes us Brothers and sisters, and we got a hug. That's just what we do. And so the, the beautiful thing that we got to do here this morning, bringing our kids in together, shutting off the upper section, getting close enough uh, to, to, to touch each other, to hear each other, to talk to each other, that's because uh, we actually believe there's a theological significance to how we organize the space. It'd be super weird if I came to your house for dinner and you sat in the one room and I went and sat in the other room and we're trying to have a conversation, right? Like some of us, uh, that's kind of how we come into these sorts of spaces. But let me, let me tell you what I mean when I say church is familial. We gather as an eclectic kingdom community of all ages, classes, colors, and cultures. 
We foster a communal identity marked by Christ-centered relationships, devoted love, and mutual ministry. Church is a family, not a production. Rather than being spectators, each member is empowered to commit their time, resources, and unique gifts to build up the body of Christ through sacrificial care, service, and generosity. And so even what we've done this week is try to simplify some of the projection. I'm not on the big screen anymore. My head is big enough, right? You don't need to see it up there. We are a family gathered uh, together. I love having the kids in here. We've got a few more elements that we're going to introduce eventually, something called the prayers of the people that is basically space for us to bring the needs and requests of the church before one another. When we have a brother or sister who's going through tragedy or is in the hospital or whatever it is, we actually want to be able to respond to that in prayer as a church, as well as respond to the things that are happening in our city or around the world. For example, if there's an immigration crisis on our southern border and there's something that we as the people of God feel the need to say about that, uh, in the form of prayer, we're going to be able to offer the needs of the world to God together. And so we come together um, to, to celebrate that we, God has made us a family. And uh, that extended greeting time today, you guys did really well. I was nervous about that. I'm the most introverted person in this room. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and that stuff scares me to death. I'm like, that is awkward.com would be that for me. And, uh, but, and some of you I know feel that same way, but, uh, man, we, we had a hard time even shutting you guys up. So good job on that. Um, and hopefully we can continue to do that even better. So we, when we gather, we gather as a family. Third, as those called to reconciliation within our city, our gathering is hospitable. Here's what I mean. We gather as a culturally redemptive expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon, and the surrounding area. As we seek the peace and prosperity of our city, we strive to create inclusive and accepting environments of grace where our neighbors are known and loved, visitors are welcomed as guests of honor, and skeptics and sojourners find a safe space to belong even before they believe. That's a good paragraph. <laughs> I like that. We, in some ways, hold community and hospitality in tension. On one hand, we want to be a family that's tight and knows each other and loves each other and shares life deeply. But on the other hand, we want to be a family that's open. We don't want to be an exclusive clique where outsiders feel like they have to learn a, a new language or something to participate. So we are a family that looks inward to one another, but we also are a hospitable family that opens not only our community, but the fellowship of God to the world, and specifically within uh, within our city here in Central Oregon. And so we want to continue to be the most hospitable, warm, and welcoming environment uh, that we can be. And uh, we want to live in, in peaceful partnership with the people and city of Bend. We don't see the city as a problem to be solved or as enemies or something like that. We are here to be good news for the people in City of Bend, and we want to open our arms and our fellowship and our community to anybody that would come. And part of my hope is that that would lead us to be having a more invitational culture as a church, that we would be prone to think about which friends and neighbors and coworkers we might even invite to come and worship with us. Because even if it's a little new and weird for them, they know that it's going to be one of the most welcoming, loving, and hospitable places in the world. So that's the hope, that we would be a hospitable gathering. 
Number five out of six, as those called to reconciliation within the world, our gathering is missional. So hospitality is our local practice. Missional is our global practice as we speak of understanding the nations, the people all around the globe. Here's what we mean. We gather with the global Christian church celebrating and learning from the movement of God throughout the world. We proclaim and embody a gospel that is good news for the whole person, for the whole world. We stand with God in Christ alongside the poor, the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. We are commissioned as ambassadors of Christ to pursue justice and participate in the global mission of God throughout our daily lives and vocations. And so we come as a hyper-localized expression of Christ's body, but understanding we're part of this much, much bigger story in this much, much bigger movement. And so we will continue to have diverse guests of other cultures and of other generations and of other colors and races that will come and help us understand how God is moving around the world and what we can learn from it. We will continue to use our time on Sundays to draw attention to the places where God is calling us to invest, to serve, to love, to go in terms of our global partnerships and opportunities. And uh, every Sunday we're going to be commissioned, we're going to be sent out. And the idea is that we are each called to be a missionary in our daily lives, through our vocation, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, wherever God has us. It's not just that we ended up there, it's that he sent us there. And we're trying to learn into that identity. And so our gathering is missional. And finally, as those called to reconciliation with creation, our gathering is joyful. We understand that we have come into existence as part of God's beautiful creation. And that there is so much that he cares about. And there's so much that he's doing and calling us to be invested in uh, as, as those who believe that he's reconciling all things to himself. So we gather to add our voices to the jubilant song of praise that's sung by heaven and earth, rocks and trees, sparrows and stars. We celebrate the image of our creator and redeemer through creative beauty, artistic excellence, joyful celebration, and hopeful lament. We worship as grateful students and stewards of all that God has made, caring for the earth and everything in it as we eagerly await the renewal of all things. And so this is why we uh, have continued to put a huge emphasis on beauty, on aesthetic, on art, on creativity. We want to do that better and better all the time. And we want to cultivate an environment of joy that when we get here, that we would come with a spirit of celebration, with a sense of anticipation, with a foretaste of the day when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And so part of that is learning to lament, learning to acknowledge the places of brokenness and injustice in creation and around the world, but we come as those who have hope. And we also want to practice uh, creation care, environmental stewardship, as well as we can as a church and continue to make plans that way as an act of worship because we love the creator and therefore cherish the world that he's created.
So, sacramental, liturgical, familial, hospitable, missional, and joyful. There will be a pop quiz next week. Come prepared. If you want to read more about this, it's on our new website, which as of yesterday is a new and improved AntiochChurch.org. It has everything that you need to know about what's going on in the life of the church, as well as all kinds of information uh, about how we're thinking and how we got to some of these places. But over the course of the summer, as we experiment with different things, this is the vision to move towards the kind of disciples that are being reconciled to God, ourselves, and one another, and joining Jesus on his mission of reconciliation in our church, city, world, and rest of creation. That's what we're going for. And here's what's so beautiful about it. The invitation of 1 John is that we would have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. And he says, we write this to make our joy complete. And so this invitation that he extends to uh, the first disciples of Jesus after his time, as well as to us today, is that we would live into this new reality. That our faith wouldn't just be words and doctrines, but it would be lived, dirty, fleshed, out relationship with God, that we would encounter him in such a way that we'll never be the same and neither will the world.